Hi, I'm Otto. Welcome to Ellen Sarah's podcast. Okay, so today we have a great episode with Dr. Elisa Hallerman. She is a PhD. She's a founder of the Recovery Management Agency. She's also the author of Sobriety, Heal Your Trauma, Overcome Addiction, and Reconnect with Your Soul. Well, first of all, her career pivots have been pretty astronomical. Yeah, they're very she big went, ones. Well, I don't want to give it away. No, don't give it but away. But she pivoted in her 20s, yeah. 30s, and 40s. It's true. So just that in itself was very, very, very inspiring. Mm-hmm. So tune in. Well, what? Well, this is You're going to just cut me off? It's just an intro. So now they're going to the episode. I know. I just wanted to give them a little bit something more to hook them. We're not there yet. We don't, we don't have their download yet. They're hooked. We no, have their download. We don't get their, they have to listen for two minutes to have their download. Okay. Well, guys, keep listening for two, at least two minutes, but this is a good episode. So just listen past that too. Okay. Look at your skin. Hi. Hi. Your skin. Yes, Sarah, you're for skin. for our audience that cannot see her. Her skin is insane. Thank you, thank you. Coming from you, it's just so nice. No, it really wow. is a good compliment because it's like Sarah, Sarah's, Sarah's obsessed with skin. It's like her fetish. It's, I pay more yes, attention. I know. I listen to you guys all the time. Oh, you do? I didn't know you listen to our podcast. That's that helps. I that do. Makes it so easier. I listen to your podcast. I have so many questions. So I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> ask us. Ask us. I know. I'm like, oh God, we. This is a heavy episode. I'm, I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be. No, heavy. no, no. <clears throat> it does not have to be heavy. There are so many times when I get on, and it's you know, it can be really heavy, but that's not your vibe. So I can be in your vibe and we can talk about important things that I think your listeners are struggling with or want to know about. Yes, but you you should know that Sarah has been saying that we have not been having life-changing episodes lately and that we are due for one. And so no pressure, but she wants this to be a life-changing episode. Let's go. I've gotten, you know, listen, we really ride the line. We do solo episodes. And since you're a listener of the podcast, you know, we do solo episodes where we're just keeping things light, letting the audience, you know, get a little better understanding of us. But then we do these episodes with guests mm-hmm. that- that are changing lives, not because of us, but because of the conversations we're having. No, I do think a lot of it's because of me. Um, yeah, some some people sometimes. might feel that way, yeah, like sometimes a couple. But uh, but like so, our sobriety. We did an episode about quitting drinking, and we've done mm-hmm. 101 episodes. And our episode about quitting drinking was shared more than any other episode mm-hmm. we have ever done. And it became this like viral episode that so oh, many- Oh, wow. I didn't know this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I think sobriety will be a fun topic for us to discuss I with think, you. Yeah. We have an audience who is, um, they're, they're, people are craving more and more than ever to get a hold of their mental health, to get a hold of their physical health. People are more aware, are more aware than mm-hmm. ever about their mental health. So I do think that this could, this could be one of our uh, better episodes. Again, no pressure. Um, All right. Okay. So can you introduce yourself to us yeah. and your audience and kind of, I know you have a very layered story. So let's just do like a little bit at a time so that you don't have to talk for 20 minutes straight. We'll kind of ask questions along the way, but introduce yourself. So I am Dr. Elisa Hallerman, but I go by Elisa. And about 12 years ago, I started this company that I have now called Recovery Management Agency. But prior to that, I was an attorney when I was very in my 20s, in my mid-20s, moved out to California, didn't like my boyfriend, didn't like living in Manhattan, wanted a change, moved to LA. 
And this is pre, you know, internet. So I didn't know a lot about a lot of things. And someone said, why don't you get a job at a talent agency? And so I said, okay, that sounds good. And I started in the mailroom and I had this 15 year career. Question. Yes. How old old were you when you started in the mailroom and switched careers the first time? I was 26. Okay. Great. I know. I love her hearing her say like, I was a lawyer in my like early twenties, my twenties. I'm like, wait, what? I mean, we were like sleeping until 11 in our early twenties. Twenties clubbing until 5am. Okay. All right. Continue. So I, I was only practicing attorney for about a year and a half, two years. So not a very long career doing that. And then I moved to LA. I knew I didn't want to be an attorney anymore. I wasn't going to take the California bar, but I had no idea what I was going to do. First, I was a cocktail waitress. Then I started working in the mailroom. So, and, but the minute I started, I was like, yeah, I think I could do this. This is cool. This is exciting. This is everything I dreamed of LA would be. Everyone was really young. This was the mid nineties. So there was still, there was still like a mystique, right? About Hollywood and what was behind the scenes. So it was, it was cool. But I also felt like I would be able to use my legal degree and be able to negotiate and maybe get a little further ahead than maybe the other person. And so when I was a young agent, I got sober in 2002, so 20 plus years ago. And and from that point on, I was very open about my sobriety, both in the entertainment business with my colleagues, with a lot of my friends, with my family. And I was always that person that people would come to. And I was always sort of like, who do we call? Where do we go? We're, we're like Googling information. We're asking our dentist who their therapist is. Like it all felt very antiquated to me and just not what was supposed to happen. And I got my mom sober when I had two years sober. And then again, so I was like constantly also going through it with my own family. And long story short, I had an existential crisis in my mid forties, as you do, and working in Hollywood. And I just really thought, well, it must be the agency. It's the agency. It's the clients. It's definitely not me. And so I switched agencies and I walked across the street and I started working at Endeavor and then they merged and I was like, this really isn't for me. And slowly I started to get curious about what else was out there. And that's such an important piece, I think, for most people is because we just keep going and going and going. And there's like this ladder that we're climbing or this roadmap that we've written this script in our head of what it's supposed to look like. And then wake up and we're like in a different movie and we're like, what happened? And long story short, I decided to start taking classes at night at UCLA and learn about addiction medicine. And I was still agenting during the day and taking classes at night. But hold on, we have to pause for a second. Agenting, (laughs) you were like a major agent. You represented major people. Tell us who you're representing by day and then at night you're, you know, in in night school. So, yeah, I represented a lot of male comedy movie stars. And what had happened was before I left UTA, one of my biggest clients had fired me after 12 years. And... And it was so significant in my life 
because this person took up a lot of space in my life, a lot of time on the phone, a lot of space in my life. And we grew up together. And so part of the thing that I didn't love about agenting was I felt like my career was very dependent upon them doing well as well. And that I was very tied to others. And I didn't, I didn't love that because I was getting healthier and I wanted like, you know, no, I, I, I'm really good at this. I can do other things. So anyway, long story short, I go to Endeavor. I don't have that many clients that come over with me. And I'm kind of sitting there and they're throwing clients. Go meet so-and-so, go talk to so-and-so, call so-and-so, fly to London, do this, do that. And I was like, you know, no, um, no, no, that doesn't really sound good. So I was kind of like phoning it in a bit, but I had this deal and I was like, well, what else could I do? So I, that's when I started taking classes. Um, but yeah, I was a partner. I mean, I wasn't doing nothing. You know, I had a real job. But you weren't fulfilled in what you were doing. I was not fulfilled at all. I like really had lost that spark. And the minute I started taking class and learning, I started to get all lit up again. And I was like, okay, what is this? And that's when I started to do more and eventually decided to retire. And that's how I started this agency. Because I was like, well, I'm really good at this. I love managing people. I do love the business that I was in. I just don't want to do that Mm -hmm. particular thing anymore. I want to help people manage their health and wellness. Now, can you talk about, you said something about, well, I mean, you made these huge career shifts and all I was thinking about when you said like at 26 years old, you decided to stop being a lawyer and go be in the mailroom is that you're 26 years old, which means like you're past that midpoint in your 20, in your twenties, where you think that you're so like getting older and getting closer to 30 and having to figure your shit out. You've gone to law school. Now, As far as I know, law school takes a really long time (laughs) and is expensive. Am I correct on those two things? This is true. Okay. So you've gone to law school. I don't know if you're taking out student loans, you're dedicating six, seven years of your life, whatever it is. How take us through the challenges of deciding after all that, that it wasn't wasted time because a lot of the women who listen to good question that wasn't even written down. That just came from her brain, came from my little brain, that little pea brain right there. just came up with that question. Little adorable brain of mine. I'm on strike right now. So my energy's all here, you know, um, I'm not allowed to use it anywhere else right now. Lisa, you're in the presence of a striking writer. Yeah, I know. I'm with you. I got it. I did not write any of these questions. <laughs> I am not writing during the strike. Um, okay. So, but I really think about, there are a lot of people who talk to us about feeling unfulfilled in their career and being so scared. Cause they're like, they feel guilty of let's say going to law school, you know, getting help from their parents, taking out loans, spending time. They feel like it's too late to make a change. It's like shameful to say, oh shit, Mm. that wasn't the right path for me. Can you talk about the tough parts of that and how you got there? Like the way you talk about it makes it sound easy, but I can't imagine it was. It, It is a great question. For me, let's not forget, I was still using during that time. So I was an alcoholic during that time period. I drank alcoholically in college. I decided to go to law school because that's what a lot of my friends were doing. And I really didn't have a direction of what I wanted to do. And I had a lot of friends that were going to graduate school of some sort. And I thought, 
And the boy that I was in love with was going to law school. So there was mm. that. Always a great reason to go to law school is if a guy you like is also, doing it. I love it. how we're just like, I just, I don't know. Like everybody was doing it. How the fuck do you get into law school? Were you like a straight A? You were obviously a functioning I was alcoholic. Smart. I'm smart. Right. You were really smart and still getting good grades, <laughs> even though you were drinking. Yeah, they were fine. They, yes, they were fine. And I was drinking and I went to law school Right when I started law school, um, you know, my parents had set me up to your to what your question is. My parents had set me up. I was living, you know, in this nice apartment on 34th and Park. I'd never really worried about money or thought about how much law school was or anything like that. I was very, very privileged. And then my dad came to us and said, listen, we're getting divorced. There was a very traumatic thing that had happened. It's in the book. My mom, my dad. We're getting divorced and there's no money. There's just no more money. And I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Like, where does it go? Where does it go? Like, what do you mean? And he's just like, I love you, but like, I can't pay for any of this. Wait, wait, wait. Because he was having tough love on you or he had lost it? No, he legit didn't have. So his business had gone under. There was a divorce. There was drama. And now here I was. So I had to make a decision. Was I going to take out those law school loans? Was I going to figure this out? And honestly, like, I don't remember what I was thinking. I just had this very, like, I got to figure it out mentality. And so I started waitressing and I took out law school loans and, you know, I moved in with a roommate and I just figured it out. But when I started to practice and law school's only three years. And so- Well, three years after the four years of the regular college. Of college, yes. So then I go to law. So then I'm, I, I'm working and it's just not, I just hated it. I hated it. And I called my dad. We're very close. And I called my dad and I was crying and I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I, I hate it. And he said- just do what makes you happy. Just do what makes you happy. I just want you to be happy. And that kind of gave me enough permission to say, okay, let me go figure something out. And then my sister was graduating from college. We're very close. Um, and she said, why don't you move to LA with me? She was moving to LA. She said, what, you don't know what you're doing. You hate your boyfriend. You hate your job. Move to LA. So we were like, let's do it. <laughs> we moved to LA. Okay. So it's kind of like... Wow. You need to, if you don't have someone else giving you permission to go do the thing that makes you happy, then you have to be willing to give yourself permission to go do what's happy, what makes you happy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think leaving the entertainment business and going back to grad school and getting my master's and doctorate, that's a real that leap. was a very big decision. As that was a grown-up big decision where now, you know. I had responsibilities, I had bills to pay, I had a home. Like that was a very big difference walking away from a big career after a long period of time and deciding to do something completely different. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I get asked about the most is and it was it was surprising the minute I sort of quote unquote retired the biggest question was like how do you do it? Like how do I do it? Well, you don't see this a lot. You don't see this a lot because yes, agents pivot 
to becoming independent producers, studio executives. But they stay in the mm-hmm. game. But they stay in the game because it's really mm-hmm. intoxicating. Mm-hmm. Hollywood is intoxicating. It's like making that leap, making that jump. Like, uh, not well, a lot like, of people do it. It's kind of like walking away from a narcissist in a relationship or something. It's like you're addicted to this. I did that too. Oh, you did two in one. <laughs> Because Hollywood can be like that, right? I mean, it's yeah. like, it's, they don't treat you well all the time. You, you, it's hard. It's complicated being a woman in Hollywood. It can be really toxic. Yeah. I'm sure as an agent, especially to big celebrities, you know, I mean, we watch it. There's a hierarchy and it's so easy to become a yes person around these people. Because if you say no too many times, then you get fired. Like they don't want to hear the word right. no. And then they can become monsters or unmanageable. Then they all of a sudden- also blame you when their shit's not together. So when they're not getting roles because so-and-so got it, they're blaming you when it's like, mm, no, it's because you're a nightmare to work with or you're a whatever, but the agent always gets blamed. But if they get the job, it's because of them. Yeah. Right. So that is hard to walk away from. Yeah, it was hard to walk away from. But at the same time, I really felt that you know, I, I, I talk about when I had five years sober, which was a really big accomplishment. I mean, having a day, a week, anything is. But, you know, five years, I was really like, you know, it was big. And I was thinking about it for a long time. I imagined where I would be during my life when that actually happened. And I woke up that morning and I felt, even though I had all these things and all these external, you know, shiny toys, I just felt like deeply emotionally unhappy. And I realized that I really hadn't done like that, that underlying work that I'd gotten sober, that I'd worked the program, but I hadn't really looked at my trauma at my early childhood at the traumatic things that had happened. And that was still hurting. And I felt like if I didn't do something different, then I would have probably relapsed and not been able to stay healthy. Was starting to go to school at night and looking into the psychology behind trauma and helping people who are wanting to get sober, was that sort of um, an avenue for you to start looking at your own trauma and your own stuff? You know, this was probably 2000. I think I left Hollywood in 2011. So this is around 2009. And I've been sober for a while. And I started to take classes at UCLA at night just to see just what are, what's going on out there. And I started to hear words like trauma. And I started to learn about neuroscience. And I was like, what? Because I was a girl that got sober in the rooms of AA with a therapist. And you know, didn't have the luxury of going to rehab and didn't have a lot of support around other things. And so I started to hear this word and I was like, wait a minute. I think, I think I have this. I think that's what's been driving Mm. my anxiety, my OCD, my panic attacks, my, you know, commitment ish, all of it. I think I, this is what it is. And so then I became even more and more and more curious. I didn't go back to get my master's and doctorate until after I left Hollywood. That would have been a bit too much. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay. It is very easy for me to talk to you about aura frames because 
I have been gifting them to family Best members. Best gift ever. And it is such a good gift. Best. And our grandmother, Mimi Nana, yep. you do not upload photos to her orphan. I, I, I have. You I have? wouldn't say I actively do, uh-huh. but I have. Jordan is better at it than you are. And I see all, all these updates, like Jordan's uploaded a photo, Jordan, because we're all connected to it. Okay. So would love to see an update from you. Yep. I um, will. But you know what? By the way, don't update. She'll just see more of us. Yep. In so, all of my spare time, I'm I believe do that. Mimi Nana has said it keeps her alive. But that's a quote. She said that keeps her alive. Well, listen, it is because I have one in the girls' room, and actually, Tommy's pretty good at doing about doing it because he travels all the time. Why don't you land the plane as to what it is first of all? Okay, well, it's a digital frame that you can upload from anywhere on your phone. You just download the app, and then you can upload um, any photos that you want or Very videos easily. that you want very easily to that person's frame. So you can delete ones. If you're like, you know what? Honestly, I'm cuter than that. Oh, that picture's old. Delete it. But it's it, amazing. So even for like husbands and wives, how cute, like, or wives and wives, whatever it is, you put your your, your frame mm-hmm. next to your bed mm-hmm. and then your, your partner's out of town. And then all of a sudden you see, oh, Look at this new picture that just arrived. Exactly. And it's like, you know, them on the plane just landed. I mean, yeah. it's really And you can like sweet. preload it. So when you um, give them the gift, it, the photos are already yeah, okay. there. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com. That is A-U-R-A frames.com. Use the code FOSTER to get up to $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling Carver frames. This deal ends on May 14th. So please do not wait. Terms and conditions apply. Love article. Each, I have multiple rooms in my house that have one little piece of article. Yeah, I have the, my little Ottomans that you always um, talk about and every time because I have Because they look very over. expensive. I know, they're very nice looking and they're very affordable. This is how they've been able to keep their prices where their prices are at because their prices are far lower than the quality of what it is. And the reason that they've been able to achieve that is because they were they cut smart. Out the middleman. They cut out the middleman, which has significantly brought down the prices of these pieces. So I always sort of explain to people about when I'm talking about article, because they ask about it. I'm like, it's got this like modern, clean aesthetic. And then you're always yelling at me that Because they have- you say that, but they actually have- Furniture that is all different types of styles. So you just happen to gravitate, see, gravitate to, but they well, actually have all Because I love the um, Ottomans. I think those Ottomans and the little boucle. Mm-hmm. But they also have mid-century. They also have coastal. Yeah. They have Scandi, But the boho. truth is you can really elevate your space changing one thing in there. It's true. Like with a lamp or a rug or a something. Really good quality and it's really well-priced. So- Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim it, you can visit article.com slash foster and the discount will be applied automatically at checkout. That's article.com slash foster for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. The concept of sobriety came from my dissertation because I studied depth psychology, D-E-P-T-H, which is rooted in a belief of the unconscious and that if we do our soul work, we can tap into our inner world and really understand what lies beneath the surface and beneath the symptomology. And that spoke to me. And so one of the questions, so the main question of the dissertation was, can doing soul-centered work help with long-term recovery? And the answer was like a resounding yes across the board, but the caveat was they didn't have the language for doing soul work or soul or any of it. And that's when I was like, oh, we need to reintroduce this language into the world of mental health. Because to me, 
it is, you know, a lot of people, right, they do Western medicine and then they go a little deeper and they'll do functional medicine. They'll want to go in a little deeper and find out what the underlying causes are. And that's how I sort of saw the mental health. That's how I see it is enough of the symptoms and enough of treating the symptoms, but like what, what's causing them? What are, what are the root causes? Yeah. It's across the board. Western medicine, across the board, Western medicine always looks at like, okay, you're drinking too much. So stop drinking or here's a medication Mm -hmm. to help you fix this or that. But they don't really look at what is the thing that you're drinking yourself away from, right? Like, I mean, it's an escape. You're- or having sex away from, right? I mean, addiction yeah. is not just alcohol and drugs. It's gambling. It's sex. It's power. It's like, it's all those things. Yeah. It's not just alcohol. But what you're saying is if you actually peel the onion back and dissect mm-hmm. it to its core, it's trauma. And I think so, right? Like, it's trauma. Yes. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are, are, I mean, I know people where I'm like, I'm so confused. Like you're a fucking alcoholic. Like, how are we just not like addressing this or talking about it? But I think so many people don't even know. They don't even understand. Like, well, I'm not an addict. Like I only drink like, you know, uh, you know, what, whatever, like this amount of drinks or this amount of days. It's like, I think there's a lot of people that are quite confused and don't even freaking know if they actually... Mm-hmm are an addict or an alcoholic or a sex addict. It's like, that's a whole other can of worms. That's a whole other can of worms, which by the way, we want to talk to you about as a friend, as a spouse, as a sibling, how to mm-hmm. like support those people, how to- Because well, I think there's, people have an idea in their mind of what an alcoholic look like looks like. Yeah, and it's and it like does. someone who's taking a shot or like drinking out of the bottle right, like falling on the a, at 8 a.m. and like can't go through a day without drinking. But, and I'm sure you can give us a, more, you know, accurate assessment of it. But from where I sit, an alcoholic is anyone who alcohol is having a negative effect in your in life. Their life un- right? unmanageable. Not even unmanageable. Yeah, exactly. Or that is the negative. Right. <laughs> that there's quoting the big book. Well, I've been to Al Anon. I used to go to Al Anon yeah. for age 16 Good. to 20. My boyfriend was a heroin addict. I mean, literally a using heroin addict who mm-hmm. I just didn't want to leave. And I had to learn that what's my fucking trauma that I'm staying? Mm-hmm. Like, right. what does it say about me and my self-worth that I stay? Like, it's, so that was like my own work to do. So I started doing Alan on it, but we can, we can talk about that after. Yeah, I think that, listen, people know when alcohol or drugs or behavioral addiction or anything at all, anything that you're reaching outside of yourself for instant gratification that, you know, we do that in so many different ways. And I still do that. And it's about noticing it and stopping. But if you have, if you're addicted to something that is negatively impacting your life, and you are also not able to stop, right? We talk about addiction as what happens is there's a disconnect within your brain once you've been using chronically for a long period of time. It's a progressive disease. It gets worse as you get older. And so what happens is, you know, the back part of your brain, should we do neuroscience 101 yes, on addiction? Yes, please. Yes, please. Okay. So there's two parts of our brain that we're going to talk about just for now. There's the back part of our brain, which is the old part, the reptilian part of our brain, which is responsible for our heart beating, our, 
body temperature, our breathing, fight or flight or survival mechanism. The front part of our brain is responsible for rational thought, logical thinking, impulse control, and going off of our memories to make good decisions, right? What happens is that when we do something, like we have a drink of water, we know that that's going to satiate our thirst, right? We know that these things are going to happen. That's how we survive. What happens is when you start using drugs or alcohol or a behavioral addiction, it's giving you too much dopamine. And because you start to build a tolerance, you need more and more and more and more of it. So you're getting an abnormal amount of dopamine. And eventually the back part of your brain says, hey, we clearly need this, like we need air and water. And so once you've taken a hit or taken a sip or you know, started down this path, then you're automatically in this back part of your brain. And you have lost the ability to be in the front part of your brain. And that's why we don't make a good decision. That's why there's so much shame the next morning because in our right minds, we would have never done that. We wouldn't have driven drunk. We wouldn't have driven with a kid in the car. We wouldn't have you know, slept with that person. We wouldn't have done any of these things. But we're no longer able to use the front part of our brains anymore. When that's happening to someone, they're making all those deals with themselves. Okay, I'm only going to have one drink tonight. Okay, I'm going to drink, but I'm only going to drink wine. Okay, I'm only going to drink on Saturday. Okay, I'm going to drink, but I'm definitely not going to do blow. Okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to go do this, right? It's like you're negotiating with yourself, but your brain has already crossed over and is in that addiction disease. And the disease is because your brain's no longer functioning in the way that it should, where normally your fight or flight comes on. And then a couple of seconds later, the front part of your brain says, whoa, 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 okay, we got it. Let's figure out what's happening and assess the situation and get out of danger. My, so the guy that I dated was a heroin addict, right? That was his thing. He didn't care about anything else. Like drinking wasn't a thing for him. Smoking weed wasn't a thing for him. Like he wasn't addicted to those things. He was addicted to heroin. But mm-hmm. when he got sober from heroin, he relapsed because he took a drink, right? Mm. But he wasn't addicted to alcohol. But because he took that one sip of beer or it was like nothing, it was a like whatever, it literally, that was it. That was it. I took mm-hmm. that one sip of beer. I am now finding my hair. Like it was like, it's all connected. But you're what saying, I'm saying he took like, a drink and, yeah. then he, and then he wanted to do heroin again or what? Other than he, it gave him permission. He was like, oh, okay, I broke my sobriety. I took that sip of alcohol. Like it's over now. Like I'm going straight to my dealer. Yeah, I'm getting my heroin. Even though alcohol, he wasn't addicted to alcohol. But isn't like, it's, it's, it's all your brain, right? It's like the same. But that's what's It's so all of. your brain. It doesn't matter the drug or whatever. I mean, if I, 20 years later, like alcohol was my thing, but really only because I wanted to do Coke. And so- if I had a drink tonight, I swear to God, you would go get cocaine. I would be like looking all around Boca. That's where I am. For you know where I could buy some coke. It'd yeah. be insane. It'd be insanity. Well, that's what's <laughs> tough about sobriety is that it, it has to be an all or nothing situation. You can't be. It has a to be little. Abstinence. Yeah, you can't be a little sober. But then some people, I know people who who um, their issue was cocaine 
but they're now living their life today, smoking weed, but they're not doing mm-hmm. cocaine. I don't know if it's right. Like I, mean, I don't, everyone's different, right. right? Everyone is different, but, but yes, the, 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 the Bible or the big book says it's all or nothing. Right. Well, <clears throat> I don't, I, you know, it's different strokes for different folks and the big book is not a medical book. Right. So the thing is, is that Yes, there's people that want to try different things. If I could smoke weed and just smoke weed and not have it interfere in my day-to-day life, would I smoke weed at this point? And the answer now is no, because I like to be present. I need to be connected to my inner guides. I need to be connected to soul source. It's what drives me. It's what keeps me creative. It's what keeps my imagination going. It's what you know, it's everything to me. So I get that elsewhere and it's much longer lasting, right? All of these other things, whether it's weed or shoes or men have, have expiration dates on them. They're short lived as opposed to right. Real soul centered wellness. I also think that when it comes to any kind of addiction, with something that's bad for you, right? Like a food addiction is like really tough because you also need food to survive. So it's a little more confusing. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to anything and I've been, um, I'm not, I would not call myself sober, but I've been um, off alcohol for almost five months now and I'm feeling very good about it. And I'm in my head about it. Like, is this a forever thing? Is it not? And I didn't have a drinking problem, but alcohol was not affecting me very well. And I knew Mm -hmm. that I needed to cut it out of my life, but I didn't want to. And you were getting to the point where you really couldn't have social interactions without. No, that's not true. It's not? Without drinking? You never went out once without drinking. No, it wasn't ever that I couldn't have a social interaction without drinking. I mean, I would have a glass of wine while I was cooking at home by myself. It really wasn't about that. It was more just, I liked to have a glass of wine, but it was hard for me to have just one glass of wine. And it wasn't like I'm drinking a bottle of wine or I'm like, you know, acting crazy or anything like that. It was just that I would suffer the next day and I would feel Mm -hmm. so bad about myself and so guilty and I'd feel so sick and like, it just made me feel bad. Like it just didn't, it just, I'm 40 now and it doesn't agree with me the way that it did yep. 10 years ago. And so I would I just like- the way, I'm sorry, the way you just described it is how I describe it when you're like, yeah, it's called a hangover. I'd be like, oh, I just didn't feel well in the morning and I felt a little sick. No, just you used to always say that you're allergic to alcohol because you would get a hangover and you didn't understand that that's how most people feel, but I became more sensitive <laughs> to it. Anyway, all I was going to say about the all or nothing thing is that, is that I think all or nothing is a great way to handle anything that you are addicted to because it takes out that in-between gray area of guessing. (laughs) And so every time I would go to a party, I would be like, okay, should I have a glass of wine or should I not? I'm driving. Could I have a glass of wine to drive home? I'm not sure. Should I ask for a friend? Do I leave my car here? That's a bad idea. Am I going to cancel my workout in the morning if I have a margarita? Mm. And then I'm going to feel bad about myself because I didn't exercise. And like, I'm going to go to sleep later. I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night with anxiety. And I would just be spinning about this decision-making process. Like, is the night that I should be allowed to have a margarita? Am I going to suffer? Am I going to regret it? Am I going to pick a fight with Simon because I had too much to drink and I'm like, you know, being sassy or whatever. And it ends up being taking the decisions out has made my life so much easier. It's not an option. So I don't worry about it. I don't stress about it. I don't think about it. It's just not an option because when people say just drink on special occasions, 
I think everything feels like a special occasion. You know, right. like you're having a girls' night, have a drink. You're right. at a boozy brunch, have a drink. You're like, you know, frustrated at the end of a stressful day. Like you want to have a glass of wine while you're cooking dinner. It's like it seems so harmless, but then if you're looking to that thing to make you feel a little bit, you know, more comfortable in your own skin, then you could find yourself giving having a reason to do it four or five days a week. It's all an escape, which we've learned through like different experts on the podcast, right? It's all an escape of something. Well, I think there are people that can just enjoy like a specific red wine with a steak, right? There are those, there are those people. I I don't know them, but they, they, they do exist. But I think that, listen, not everyone wants to live deeply right? Like everything you were just saying, Erin, about like the reasons, like you made that choice because you want to have a better relationship. You want to have a better work ethic. You want to have better friendships. Like those things are important to you. Those are your values. And that's where, why you decided to make the choice. Those things became more important to you. And so, but not everybody wants to live like that. Some people want to live over here on the surface, you know, just walking through their everyday life. No, but that's a good point. But what you're saying is a good point because it's like you have to get to a place where the workout the next day is a part of your mental health, right? Making that workout in the morning, three days a week is a part of the ecosystem that keeps you sane and connecting with your friends and not like saying something bitchy because you had a glass of wine is a part of connecting with your friends, being in a good relationship with your husband, where you like are responsible for the things that you say and do. Like, I mean, I've not, not, I was never like some belligerent, you know, drinker, but I know if I had two glasses of wine at dinner, I was more likely to pick a fight in the car on the way home. I was just more likely, I was more likely to be sensitive to something he said or be annoyed about something or impatient. And I just didn't like it. So mm-hmm. you're right. You have to get to a place in your life. If you're, you know, speaking as someone there's more probably a lot of people like me where you're not, you don't have a drinking problem, but it does kind of make you cancel the workout, make you pick a fight, make you feel more sensitive, more likely to get emotional, not going to sleep as well. Not operating at the highest cylinder at work. Yeah, going to be tired the next day. You know, it's mm-hmm. a cascading effect. So what are your priorities? Like, do you want to, like you're saying, not everybody is not everybody wants to live their life deeply is so interesting. But also it makes me think about like, really? Like, don't we think that everybody actually does want to live their life deeply, but just so many people are so not capable of it because of their trauma? Who just would choose like, oh, I don't want to live my life deeply. Like those people clearly have trauma that they need to work through. Well, let's, Let's define trauma. Let's. We're clear. So trauma is not about the actual event that took place, which is why we can't compare our trauma to other people's trauma, right? Trauma is subjective in that it's not the event, but it's how the event is affecting us in our present day life. Okay? So Some people, everyone experiences trauma or secondary trauma from watching the news or whatever, but not everybody is going to have that affect them in their present life because their resilience is different to that specific thing. 
So when someone says, well, we all have trauma, well, we, we all do, we all do. But some of us are more resilient than others in specific ways. So there's three different kinds of trauma. There's an acute trauma, which is a one-time event, a car accident, you know, um, an assault, something like that. There's chronic trauma, which is something that's ongoing. So maybe a child being bullied or, you know, maybe they're, you're working for a narcissistic boss and you have to go into the job every single day, or you have a mentally ill mom and she's, you know, inconsistent. And then there's complex trauma, which is pretty much a combination of both, but really looking at early childhood trauma. When you're a kid, you think the whole world revolves around you. There's no separation. You know, there's a very distinct moment where as a, as a teenager and and you realize like, oh wait, my parents are people. Like I didn't even realize that they had their own stuff going on. I don't think you realize that until you're an adult. I think, I don't think, I don't think I realized my parents were people until I was like in my late 30s. Sarah just realized it. Like, She's oh, like, you guys are human. Sarah's like, like a wait. late bloomer. She's a late bloomer. <laughs> no, but it, it was traumatic when they brought home another baby named Aaron. Like I was supposed to be an only child. Like that's Sorry. when my, that's when my trauma set in. I was like, wait, we're doing this with like someone else? So that is too. I cried and asked my parents to bring back my sister because I only wanted a brother. Um... I was three and a half. Um, so, you know, we, we all have these experiences, but we all have our own window of tolerance based on our previous experiences. Trauma couples on top of each other. So for me, I had a lovely childhood. There was really nothing to complain about, but there were little things. Like we didn't discuss things and my mom didn't have answers to a lot of questions. And, you know, some things would happen and I would get really like anxiety or whatever, and I wouldn't get a real explanation or her anxiety was so high that it started to rev mine up or whatever it was. And then there was the divorce and then there was the other stuff that happened, but I was still pretty resilient. None of that was really affecting my everyday life, right? I went to college, I went to law school, like I was still succeeding in ways. When I got to Hollywood and I started working in the business, the first agent that I worked for became a very close friend of mine. We were like best friends. He was like an older brother to me. And um, I worked for him for a year and a half and he committed suicide. And, And I was, you know, 27. And my, everything just, you know, everything from before, everything that had happened then I was suffering from like immense PTSD and no one was coming to save me. No one said, go to therapy. My parents didn't fly to me to LA, like nothing, like there was nothing there. And that was really the trauma that stuck with me and created the narrative that I carried for a very long time after that of like, fuck it. No one's coming for you. You've got to do this yourself and just figure it out and no one cares. Was it a form of emotional abandonment in some ways growing up in a home with people that wouldn't give you, that wouldn't answer questions, that didn't have, is that kind of like a form? Like they're there, but it's like they're emotionally not there. Is that? I mean, I didn't feel that way at the time, but I think that what happens is, is that when these things happen, 
you create a narrative. Like I talk about, you put these little post-it notes on your soul. Something happens, you're like, oh, uh, I'm not good enough. Um, he doesn't love me. Or, oh, I guess I'm not pretty. I, I'm the funny one. I'm the smart one, whatever it is, right? And you start to create this narrative and that informs your beliefs and your personality and your behaviors. And if we never look at that, then we're just riding on all that. Then we add in trauma and something happens that really takes you out of your window of tolerance. And now you're just like either burying it, not dealing with it, but it affects in a big way our neurobiology, our brain and our memories and our body and how we store it and how it affects our nervous system moving forward. Right, so it's like you start building your life on this unstable foundation filled with like, you know, ingredients for not the most healthy adult life. Right. (sighs) Some people think that we have ownership in Bull and Branch, but we do not. We do not. We do not um, have any ownership. We don't have any equity, but we just really love Bull and Branch because they are 100% organic cotton threads. Okay. They are so nice. They are Buttery they are so soft. Nice. They're so buttery soft. They have ten, they have over ten thousand rave reviews. Well, we learned a while ago that it's really bad to sleep on toxic sheets. Yeah, that it's really bad for you. That the same way I mean, your moisturizer seeps into yeah. your skin, so does yeah, um, toxic. You're sweating in, your in it. You're sweating in sheets. You're. Yeah. It's just terrible How for you. How much are you sweating at night? Well, I get hot in the night. I'm not. I'm not like a big sweater at night. Oh, okay. Well, you run cold like your heart. <laughs> They are unmatched softness and they have a hundred percent traceable organic cotton that is softer with every single wash. You just feel better sleeping in them. They feel great. They look great. There's just, they can't, you can't go wrong. And they also, I know we're promoting their sheets, but they do everything now. They have Mm -hmm. bath towels. They have pillows. They have the pillow inserts. Mm -hmm. They really have you covered. It's free from synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, other harsh chemicals that are sadly in a lot of sheets and bedding. So sleep better at night with bowl and branch sheets. Get 15% off your first order when you use the promo code FOSTER15 at bowlandbranch.com. That is B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code is FOSTER15. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I probably shouldn't say this publicly, but Valentina on the way to school this morning was like, mom, did you steal my Vegamore lash serum? I was like, uh, no, you clearly stole my Vegamore mm-hmm. lash serum. I mean, her eyelashes are really long. <laughs> well, I knew that she was using it because I asked her recently why her eyelashes look even longer than usual and fuller. And she said, oh, Vegamore lash serum. And I was like, Valentina, you're too young for that. I know. But I dug mine out of my bathroom door and now I've been using it for the last week. And then when I picked up Valentina from school today, she was on the phone with a friend who was apologizing to her because she's the one who stole her eyelash serum. What? Yes. The friend stole it. So this thing, it's like the sisterhood of the traveling lash serum. But if they're going to be using, I'm happy they're using Vegamore because it's clean. Yeah, it's clean. I use the shampoo and conditioner. Yeah, the shampoo and conditioner is very popular. I love the lather. It's the revitalizing one. Masha loves the, um, the shampoo and conditioner for her kids. I use it on the kids too. Yeah. It's, it's really good because it's, it's, it's a clean brand. They've got you covered. All thing hair, all things hair, Vegamore has got you covered. Yep. It is cruelty-free. It is never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones ever. Okay. Um, key is consistency in your routine. So be very consistent. I use Vegamore Grow hair serum daily and um, my hair and my scalp are flourishing. So 
Give yourself the hair that you never thought that you could have with Vegamore. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your first order by going to vegamore.com slash foster and use the code foster at checkout. That is V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash foster, codes foster to save 20% on your first order. Do you think that we, and when I say we, I mean young people that are not us, um, overuse the word trauma? Definitely. It's one of those words that is getting thrown around because, you know, in a way that's good because people are, you know, I wish more people would say, well, what does it mean? Right. More people would be curious about, well, what does it really mean? But enough people are like, do I have it? You know, by the time someone comes to me, they're like, I think they're either walking in with, here's my trauma, or they're like, maybe I'm doing this too much, or maybe I have a drinking problem, or they're, you know, I'm filled with anxiety or depression. And then we pull apart and look at everything and really look at where the ruptures have been. I don't think everyone's able to say exactly like, this is my here's my trauma. Like Gen Z seems to think that being uncomfortable is trauma, which I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think being uncomfortable is trauma. I think being uncomfortable is stressful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is stressful, but it's, it's like you have to learn to deal with stress. I mean, that's what I exactly. am learning in my, I'm, I go to DBT therapy, which I'm really into. Um, and I'm, I always have to say, I do the skills training. I don't, I'm not in DBT therapy. Um, and in all, so much of it is focused on being comfortable, being uncomfortable, because that's sort of yes. the, that's the drink that you go to grab. That's the sarcastic comment you make that you regret. Those are the things you lean on so that you won't be uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable standing in this room by myself, or I'm uncomfortable that maybe that mm-hmm. person doesn't like me, or I'm uncomfortable with how I look or whatever it is. And you want to force that feeling away. And the thing that my therapist is always teaching me is like, embrace that feeling. That discomfort is your survival. Like you, exactly. ha- you, you have to get comfortable with that feeling. It's, it's so empowering to be able to stand there and be uncomfortable. No, I think you we're disagree? just, no, I totally agree with you. But I do think like my daughter's generation, the 12 year olds, the, you know, mm-hmm. we are, we are going so out of our way to make sure that they never feel any sort of comfort. I don't even know what's supposed to happen in the real world. I mean, they have so much armor all around them. Like, I don't even know what we're doing. Everything is traumatic. Like the teacher looked at the wrong way. I am traumatized by how the teacher looked. It's like, really? Welcome to the real fucking world. People are going to look at you mm-hmm. funny. They're going to say rude things to you. That is life. This world that we live in now where it's like, I did not like the way that my teacher looked at me. And I did not like the tone of my teacher telling me, that I should have brought my homework in on time. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, what, but like mm-hmm. this is, and I don't know if this is like a coastal thing. This might be like a more of a coastal thing, but mm-hmm. it's, it's freaking nuts. I don't think it's coastal. I think it's generational. No, but it is. I, I think it's a bit generational where the word is getting thrown around for sure. And listen, it's, you know, is it the school's responsibility? Is it the parents' responsibility? Is it the community's responsibility to, explain. But yes, they should fail. They should have stressful moments. They should build resilience. They're not all building resilience. I told their school. I told the school. I said, you tell her to shut the fuck up. I said, I literally said, I go, if she (laughs) goes and complains to you, like her other friends, like, oh, I was uncomfortable the way that I said, you tell her to get the fuck back to class because I 
do I am I do not want you know she needs to to tough, learn toughen up. I literally the teacher although was we're like, like traumatized by our parents telling us to toughen up. As the kid. principal was like, uh, I really did say this to the principal. I was like, okay, I know that this is the school and all, but like I would like you to single out my daughter, like be a little harsher with her. Do not. <laughs> Let her tell you she's That's traumatized. Good. She needs it. She needs it. Yeah, she needs it. I support that. I just want to highlight something just for all the other kids out there. Like, the thing is, there you can see that because you know that your daughter it has her head on straight, that she can self-regulate, that she isn't really suffering from you know anything. Oh, that she thinks is she's suffering. Worrisome, but so many of these kids are that we have to take every little thing they say on its surface, like exactly. And like, look into it because it's there. Like they say these little things and you're like, okay, wait, what did they mean? And unfortunately we have to like investigate all of it because there are those kids that'll just, you know, have those really hard. Okay. But why do you think, and this is a whole other conversation, but why is, and I'm talking about what's the age demo I'm talking about right now, 12 to 16, 12 to 20. Yeah. Is it social media? It's social media, right? Social media has completely just appended the mental health of these kids. They feel left out. They feel ugly. They feel this. They feel that. They don't feel this. They don't know who they are. They're not uncomfortable in their, they're uncomfortable in their bodies. Like we've never seen anything like it, right? No, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a mess. And it's a mess when you hear the founder of TikTok and all these other companies being like, oh no, I don't let my kids use that. Are you crazy? (laughs) No, No way. Oh, see ya, Aaron. Oh, guess what? We were at our favorite daughter offices today. Carla, our designer, had the hand cream that I told her about the anti-aging hand cream on her desk. And she said she got it from the podcast. Did she use our code? Yes, she used our code. Okay. And um, she loves it as much as I talk about it. Yeah. So Osea is really the only brand of skincare that everyone in the house is using because I let Valentina use it. We talk about it. She wears makeup. So when you wear makeup, you have to use skincare. She shouldn't be wearing makeup, but continue. Okay. Well, that's for another day. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel totally great about her using the Osea Mm -hmm. products. So she uses- And they have a new product that we are talking about today, which um, I just recently started using because they sent it to me and it is the Osea's Ocean Eyes Serum. Checks all the boxes. It brightens, it smooths, depuffs, awakens the entire area of your eyes. Are you using this at night and in the morning? I typically use it at night. I think um, that the eyes are, if you're going to do- The windows to the soul. Yeah. If you're going to do one thing- The windows to your soul. Choose the eyes. Let me look at your eyes. Oh, windows to your soul, huh? Soulless. No, it's all a darkness. (laughs) Deep, deep darkness is what I just said. Well, I haven't used this eye cream. Right. You got to use the serum. I use everything else. So, Mm -hmm. see, I I use their hyaluronic. Mm -hmm. I use the. uh, All their products are clean. They are vegan. They are cruelty free. They are climate neutral. They are powered by seaweed. They are conceived in California. Mm. All the good things. So, spring is. You're speaking very like. Just just, just take a breath. Got it. Okay. It's going to be all right. Take a breath and just okay. speak from the heart. Talk to us about you use Osea. You love Osea. It was created in Malibu. Mm. It's just talk to us from that place. Okay. But I'm about to do, to do the call to action. So can I do that in this little breathy voice of yours? Okay. Okay. Let me try it. <sighs> spring into no your most radiant. Oh. doesn't like it when you sigh. Oh, got it. Okay. Um, spring into your most radiant skin yet with clean vegan skincare and body care from Osea. 
and get 10% off your first order site-wide with the code FIRST at ocmalibu.com. You're going to get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to oseamalibu.com and use the code FIRST for 10% off. So Noom is a psychology-based approach when Mm -hmm. it comes to feeling your best and looking your best. Noom empowers you to build more sustainable habits and behaviors. It's a science-backed program, and it helps you with your eating choices. It helps you really understand why you're craving the things you want to crave. So if you're feeling like, I am not feeling my best. I am not looking my best. I want to get in shape. I want to feel good. You sign up for Noom. It holds you accountable. Mm-hmm. It it connects you to like a, a coach, right? Yeah. Who will help hold you accountable. You start like, um, what's it called? Cognitive therapy. So you start training your brain mm-hmm. to be accountable for the things you're putting in your body. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's not like a crazy fad diet. First time Noomers lose an average of 15 pounds after being on the program for 16 weeks and 95% of customers say that Noom is a long-term solution. Mm-hmm. That's, That's a lot of find. people. Very hard to find. That is a lot of people. It's it you doing the work. It's not you, yep. you, you know. Highly recommend it. So stop chasing health trends and build sustainable, healthy habits with Noom's psychology-based approach. You can sign up for your trial today, today at noom.com slash foster. That is N-O-O-M.com slash foster to sign up for your trial today. Check out Noom's first ever book, The Noom Mindset, a deep dive into the psychology of behavior change. It is available to buy now wherever books are sold. And I would just like to say oh. we have people that are using this app and it is astonishing like the life change that they've made. What's your advice to someone, you know, who's listening and they realize that they are doing things to fill a void? Overspending, workaholics, drugs, alcohol, codependency, food, sex. Like, what do you do if you think to yourself, shit, I think I am kind of filling a void with those things? My question is always why, why, what are you like, what are you feeling in those moments? What is underneath that void? Where is that void coming from? Like, can we get a little bit more clear? Like, you know, I'll often say to my clients, like, can you just, a lot of people will start with, I think this, and I'm like, well, if you think this, it isn't, it isn't the answer, but if you could put your hand over here and you could sink into How does it feel in your body when you say this, that, or the other thing? And, you know, we all hear these whispers, like people will say, you know, my intuition, or you hear, I call them whispers from soul, but you'll hear these whispers that are asking you these like big questions. And most of the time we're just like, shush, 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 not right now. You know, do I like the, you know, person I'm dating? Do I like my job? Do, you know, whatever it is, do I want to live here anymore? And if we start to really listen, then it's like, write those questions down and take tiny little right actions towards what can you do to look into that and be curious about it and pull the threads of your curiosity. I love this quote from your book. You said, and I've been trying to read it for the last 15 minutes and I don't know. Aaron probably keeps interrupting me, but addiction is an attempt to avoid the pain that comes when we are out of sync with our source. 
It's an attempt to distance ourselves from the painful throb of emptiness where our soul connection should be. So I want to get, I mean, I guess that that brings me also back to this generation. I think, I think this, the, the young kids right now are feeling so empty. Empty. Empty, right? There's so much going on. There's so much, just, they all have fucking ADD, right? They think, they all think they have ADD. And I don't want to generalize, but every one of my 12-year-old daughter's friends is like, I have ADD. Like you don't have ADD, I don't think. You are you are you are empty. You are empty because you're scrolling all day. You're either at school or you're scrolling. You're just doom scrolling and looking at what doom everyone scrolling. else is doing, right? Instead of actually going inward. Yeah, I mean, I look at addiction as it's this existential crisis, right? We can't. We've lost our meaning and purpose. We've lost our way. And if you're constantly outside of yourself. And you're never looking inwards. And it's so easy to do that now. It's so easy for me to do it. I wrote the book on how to do the work inward. But it happens. But you have to make time to look inward. Because that's where the answers are. Like there's this... James Hillman talks about the acorn theory. That just like an acorn is born and knows exactly that it's going to turn into an oak tree and it needs no instructions and it needs no help and it's just going to happen. So too are we. And if we only listen to that voice, to that intuition, to that whisper, it will always put us in the right direction. Now, you know, there's going to be those uncomfortable moments. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be grief. There's going to be anxiety. Those things are going to happen. And to your point, Erin, like that is essential. And I talk a lot about not being afraid of the dark and sitting in it because that's where the wisdom comes from. That's where we can alchemize our pain into purpose. We have to learn not to be afraid of the dark and to sit in it. But to back to you is the kids are so out of their bodies and so not connected. They're all up here and they're not connected. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's the main issue. It's true. And these are going to be the people that are going to be in charge in this country. These are the people that are going to be uh, running the show. This generation of kids who are not connected to a source. Again, we can't generalize. So, you know, there are a lot of kids that are, but a lot more kids than ever that are not. They're all vaping. Not my daughter and her necessarily friends, but they're all vaping. I don't remember the 13-year-olds growing up well, we didn't have the vaping list. No, but even around. smoking. I mean, they're all looking because they all have anxiety. Mm-hmm. Again, not generalizing, but a lot of them we've, and you said it yourself, mm-hmm. there's more anxiety than ever. I want to talk about trauma being passed down while we're talking about the kids. So, because we've talked about that. We've talked about, wait, if you have not healed your trauma, if you have not begun to dissect your trauma and you get pregnant and you are caring and you are, are we passing this trauma down? Are we talk to us about the science of of generational trauma? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's twofold. Obviously, they're picking up. You know, when I'm doing like a full assessment, I'm asking about what was your pregnancy like, what was going on in your life at that point in time. We have learned that you know if the mom is suffering during that time, or you know something traumatic happened, that that will affect, that can affect the the baby and how their nervous system operates. But there's also 
if you don't do your own work, and this is for any parent, not just one that has trauma, if they're not doing their own work, they're mixing what's theirs with their kid. So they have their own work to do. And so, you know, maybe in their family of origin, their parents were acting a certain way and they didn't get the support that they needed. So now they're overbearing or they're too much or whatever it is. They haven't done their work. They're working it out on their kid. And that is also how we have generational trauma because it's hard for parents to see like when I, you know, when I come into a family system and it's like, there's something going on with the kid there's often so much going on with the parents that there has been for a really long time to no fault of their own, but just their own family of origin that they haven't maybe looked at yet. So it really influences the way they, the way that you parent yourself. And so how, what's the best way to try to break that cycle? Heal your own trauma, honey, before you procreate, I guess. I was asking the expert. I think it's always about, you know, everyone getting in their own lane and doing your own work and then coming back together, you know, as a family, because it really is important to know what's yours. You're not going to heal everything, but be self-aware, know what's yours, know what your wounds are, know what you're working on. You know, if you're someone that isn't, isn't in therapy or you don't, you're not speaking this language, those are the people that are going to get into more trouble where they're like, oh my God, I didn't even know that this was a thing that I was da 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 da. Like you guys are, you you know a lot, you've been in therapy, you've been around a lot of people. So it's, you know, it's different. Everybody's not like that. Right. Do you think everybody has to go, I don't even know if you can answer this question, but um, do you think everybody, like it used to be, oh, you can't get sober unless you go to rehab. But do you believe you are a psychologist? So you, 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 you know, you have the authority to say, do you believe people, I mean, I guess you do, it's in your book. If you, you, you can get sober through healing trauma on your own. You can, anyone can get sober. Staying sober is what's hard. Yeah. Right. So I think if you are looking for long-term sobriety, you're going to want to do the deeper work, whatever that is. And for a lot of people, that's trauma work. But, and not just trauma that before, but think about all the trauma that we ensue just as an addict or an alcoholic, the the places I put myself, the things I did, you know, all the trauma that I caused myself just from being an addict. So there's a lot to look at and unpack eventually. But I think it's about, you know, and there's a lot of people that stay sober or they, whether they went to rehab or they went to program or they just woke up one day and said, you know, that's it. But does that mean that they're living a life in joy? You know, it's like, it's one thing like to be, you know, there's abstinence to me, there's abstinence, there's sobriety and there's sobriety, right? And it's just, you know, there's, there's, there's a big spectrum. What are the differences to you? So abstinence is, you know, I'm not, I'm not drinking or I'm not using or I'm clean or whatever that is, you know, and, or abstinent from a specific thing and not whatever that is. So you're abstinent. To me, sobriety was about a design for living in my abstinence and really learning how to show up 
as a sober woman and what that meant and how to live in integrity and how to make amends and how to show up and be of service and how to be humble and all of these things that I wasn't taught growing up. That's what sobriety gave me. That's what the program gave me. Sobriety gave me a much deeper healing into the trauma and then a lifestyle of growing down so that I'm always constantly looking at what lies underneath because the addiction, you know, I call her Trixie, but she's not going anywhere. You know, she still has a very loud voice. And although now she's not saying like, let's go have that drink. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. She is quite manipulative and makes, you know, she wants to make poor choices. And it was really learning the the difference between her voice and mine. And then I have other, you know, personas that I talk about, but, you know, Trixie's a big one. And so, yeah, that's the difference for me. It is true. I think I know a handful of sober people who are sober. They're technically sober. They don't drink anymore. They don't use drugs anymore. But they feel soulless because I think, I think what's missing is all the work you're talking about. It's not enough to just like, okay, I, I, I've worked the program. Like I'm not drinking. Like I, I'm not drinking. I haven't had a drink in a year. Because the drink is but just the symptom. The drink is just the symptom, which is what sobriety exactly. is all about. You can cut the thing out of your life, but you have to get to the root cause of why you are grabbing for it so often. Right. Or it's just going to be something else. Yes. You be, also, it, because you say- see people who are sober and they're vaping all the time and they're smoking cigarettes and then they're like, you know, in toxic relationships. And it's like, you're really just kind of transferring it somewhere else. Exactly. Can we talk about shame a little bit? Because I think a lot of um, shame is correlated and connected to trauma. I talk about shame a lot with my therapist. <laughs> he mm. accuses me of shame. You're, you have Trixie. I have shame over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is the culprit in a lot of my decision-making and in a lot of my unhealthy relationships. Shame is kind of like always at the, um, it's right here. So can we talk about how shame is connected to this conversation? Yeah, so shame is, right, a very painful feeling that comes from a belief of who you are and who you are is not okay. And, you know, it's very personal to the person in that, it, you're, it, when you feel shame, you feel like something's wrong with you, as opposed to when you feel guilty, you feel guilty about something that you did. It's a behavior. And that is something that you can clean up or ask for forgiveness or, you know, make amends or whatever it is. But shame is a belief that you're, that you're, something's wrong with you, that you're unlovable, that you're not good enough, any of these things. Right. And we compensate that for in so many different ways by trying to do everything by, you know, trying to be perfect by, you know, I, I got this, I got that. No, no, no. I'll make cookies. No, I'll bring the thing over. Whatever it is, because we're constantly trying to prove to only ourselves that this belief is not true. And so much shame leads to addiction, depression, suicide. I mean, it is 
the thing that is most hurtful in different relationships because you're not showing up as the person you really are, but rather this person that you believe yourself to be because you put up these brick walls year after year after year. And, you know, the only way through shame is to be really empathetic towards yourself or someone else that's experiencing it. And take away the secret and take away the judgment and like not be silent about it. The minute you're not silent, the minute you're you're not silent about something that's shameful is the minute that the shame goes away. You know, there were some things in the book that I still carried some shame around. And when I was writing, I was told, write from your scars, not from your wounds. And that was very powerful because there were some things that were easy to talk about. And there were some things that I'm still working on. But there was one thing that I wanted to share because it felt very, very shameful. And I knew that if I didn't share it, the one person who called me, called bullshit on me on this specific thing, that shame was going to take me down and the whole thing would have been for nothing. So I was like, I got to name it. I have to put my shame in the book. You cannot write a book about integrity and sobriety and soul and not put it in there. And that was hard for me. But the minute I did, like it was so freeing, you know, and it's the thing that no one ever even brings up. But to me, it was everything. It was everything. Mm. And you know, it's just about having empathy. Mm. But that's always a story we tell ourselves. We always assume everybody's judging, everybody's watching. This person won't want to be my friend if they knew that I thought this or did this. But it's just a bullshit. It's a lie we tell ourselves. Or if it is true, you'll be okay. If exactly. someone thinks, if someone thinks that's the thing you did is too, awful. Me too is the most powerful sentence in the world, right? Because it's like, it's so empathetic and freeing when you're, because the shame is like the silence and the gunk mm-hmm. and the, right, the secrecy. Talk to us about about the book, about why you wrote this book and like the purpose of it and, and who should be reading it, like what someone's going to get from it. During lockdown, everything shifted in the mental health field. There was so much more depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, really, really young adolescents and young adults suffering from suicidal ideation, eating disorders. It was such a tidal wave like I'd never seen in the years that I'd been working in this field. And it was so devastating to know that I couldn't help that many people and that, you know, to be able to work with me or work with our company is it's just, it's not a luxury that everybody's going to be able to afford, unfortunately, right now. But I wanted to do more. I wanted to give, I wanted people to feel more connected. I wanted them to have information. And that's when I started to write the book. And in the beginning, I was like, am I writing a self-help book? I don't know how to write a self-help book. You know, I know how to write a movie. Like that's, that's all I read was scripts. So I decided to just write stories and stories and stories, and then eventually I would put it together. So the book is told as a memoir, a prescriptive memoir, I would say, of my life through addiction, trauma, and sobriety, and through clients using examples of different things. 
and weaving it all together in a way that really explains a lot of the harder issues, you know, that we want to learn more about by storytelling. We need to talk about RMA because we haven't talked about RMA, your agency. We, I mean, we hit on it a little bit, but can you just tell the audience? Because there really is nothing like this. Is I mean, I had, I had never heard of this. I was like, wait, a recovery agency? What does that even mean? What does that do? So tell our audience about um, from from talent agency to recovery agency is is uh... yeah. So basically, we work with individuals or families or businesses or schools. And people walk in through the door of either, you know, there's some sort of addiction, whether it's substance abuse or behavioral, or there's just a mental health issue. There's anxiety, there's depression, there's bipolar, there's suicidal ideation, there's psychosis, whatever it is, schizophrenia, it doesn't matter. Or there's some sort of trauma and they're pretty aware of it. And so we do two things. One is we do crisis management. So if someone's psychotic, we're like, they're helping get them into the hospital. And then for everybody else, there's that moment where we just pause enough to get all the information. And that looks like full assessments and really a discovery of who this person is from like a 360, you know, and really educate my clients on what's out there and make recommendations and then just together decide what would be best for them. And a lot of my clients, and I didn't anticipate this in the beginning, I thought it was going to kind of be this one and done, and then they would move on. I've had clients for 10 years. And it's not that every month we're actively in it together, but you know, something happens, or there's just there's a divorce, or there's a breakup, or you know, or now their kid needs something. And so they feel like they always have these managers around that can really help them with all things mental health. I have a lot of friends right now who are really uh, struggling with their teenagers. And it's that thing where it's not severe enough to where it's like, oh God, we got to put this child in rehab or we got to commit this, my, my teen. But I have a lot of friends who are like, the kid is drinking. I caught, you know, alcohol with the friends and the thing. They're vaping. They're smoking weed. They're not, and it's like this in-between phase where it's like, you don't send them to rehab, but they're also 15, 16 years old. You can't, it's like tough to ground them. You can take the phone away, but I have a lot of friends who don't really know where to turn right now because it's not, it's like this gray area because no there's no playbook for it. Cause it's like, yeah, you, you, there's no rehab. We've never seen it. We've never seen it before. I know there's so much education and prevention and believe me, like I, I hear it every, it, this is my every day. And I'm like, please come to me now when it's just like, mm, it's a little gray. We're not sure, whatever. Like, what are some tips? What can we be doing? How can we be sitting and having these conversations? You know, can you sit and have these conversations with them and really sort of explain it? I mean, I, you know, I'm meeting with kids that are 13, 14 years old and just trying to get ahead of it because I, you see where it's going and the parents know they have a feeling they're like, this could go either way. Are we just going to send them off to school and hope for the best? Because that's what we had those kinds of college experiences. Well, it's not like that anymore. We don't have the luxury of having them, you know, of having it go wrong because 
that ends in tragedy today. That doesn't, it's not like it was when we were growing up. You know, there's a huge epidemic. There's a huge opiate crisis. There's just, right, 136 people a day dying from opiates alone. Like no, it's, it's, crazy. It's, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. No, kids can't really experiment safely anymore no. because no. something could be laced with fentanyl and then you die the first time you try I something. I told my 12 year old, I'm like, let me tell you something, honey, you could die the first time you, and which again, I've said on the, it's probably not the, the number one um, way you Sarah's daughter thinks that there's fentanyl in beer. I'm like, there's fentanyl <laughs> everything. Everything can be fentanyl. <laughs> you can't. And listen, that, that is probably- I prob- support it. That is probably not, I'm not a doctor. Do not take my advice. That is just in my I like home. It. How I have chosen to- Keep her um, scared handle things. But I've also really, I've also really tried to teach her that it's really cool. And I get it. Like we grew up like, it's cool to say no, but it really is. And I really have convinced her that the only reason that older kids actually like her, because all these older kids want to be friends with her. I'm like, I'm telling you, it's because every time they've asked you to vape, you're like, vaping's for losers. No, I don't vape, you loser. (laughs) Again, Maybe not how you should be teaching your daughter. But Sarah's like, like, you tell them that they're, like, all them they're all losers. all losers. <laughs> but I'm telling you, she, she feels this confidence in yeah. going, no, I don't want to drink. It's important. I don't want to smoke. I don't want to do any of those things. And I'm not afraid to tell my friends who are asking me to do it yeah. that I think it's beneath them. And I'm like, no, I think that's cool. Okay. If you, she's not it's a great. It's great that you're giving her language. Right, you're not just saying don't do this. You're going to get punished if I find this, this, or this out. But it's oh no, I told you're her she will explaining be right. But you're also explaining, and more importantly, giving her language so she can say back to other kids, "No, and here's why." But again, I am lucky because she is a very uh, what is it calibrated. She's a very uh, self aware. Yes, and she's. Um, very even keel, you know? So it's like, I am lucky. There is a certain amount of like chemically, she she is not struggling. There are kids whose parents were yeah. alcoholics. As we know, mm-hmm. that is- I don't think of Valentina as even keeled, but I think of her as no, but you know very what? good head on her. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes. So I think we're winding down, but I wanted to ask my last question, which- And then I get one more question. Yeah, you get one more. Thank you. Um, Which is- you know, sobriety is such a personal thing. You really can't decide for anybody else when they should be sober. But what is or is there a, a an appropriate way to say to someone in your life that you care about that, you know, they might want to take a look at it? I love that. I love that you asked that. So the best way to talk to someone that you think has a problem is to ask permission is to say to them like, hey, you know, not while they're high or drunk, obviously, but hey, you know, there's something I want to talk to you about. And, you know, are you open? Are you open to hear how I feel? Or are you open to feedback right now about something that happened? And when you ask for permission, the person's either going to say, no, I'm not, which is, you know, a hard no at the moment, but they're going to think about it. and They're going to be curious as to what you want to talk about. Or they're going to be like, yeah. And that's going to allow you the space to have a conversation, you know, from your heart to theirs. And then tell them why you're concerned. But instead of using these like 
you know, you did this and you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this. It's like, I'm noticing X, Y, and Z. I'm scared. I'm this, I'm that, how you feel. And then handing them solutions. So, you know, maybe call this therapist or do this or whatever, but coming in with solution because, you know, there were so many times where I was, you know, so in deep in my addiction and so, so sick. And I knew I was sick. And in a lot of moments, I wanted someone to come in and help me and save me. And I think if more people would have done that with a like, listen, we're going to not just you're, you know, you're this, you're this, you're this, but like here, we're going to take you, we're going to go, we're going to sit in this meeting, we're going to meet this therapist, we're going to do this thing. So I think coming to them with an action step is really helpful too. Okay. That's good. Good advice. Listen, I guess my question is a good, is a good one because it's a, well, no, you don't decide if your own question's good. She decides if it's a good question. (laughs) It piggybacks. It's really like the continuation of your question, which is is as a spouse or a close friend or somebody who is currently, um, trying to support someone who's in the thick of their recovery. So this is somebody who is sober, Mm. newly sober as a, how is the, what are the best ways to support that person as a spouse or, you know, a best friend or whatever, I guess a spouse. So you want to stay in your lane, right? Assuming that they have a plan and support people and they have people around them that are helping them. You really want to stay over here. So if it's a spouse, you really want to look at your own side of the street you know, how are you interacting? You want to get away from being the police and just being the spouse, right? You want to get back to that loving place where you're not having to say, you know, did you do this? Did you do this? Are you there? Oh, I smell. You don't, you don't want to live like that. You don't want to be the detective anymore. And you want to start to feel safe and you might need some help with that. But just showing up, being supportive, asking questions, letting them come to you, you know, I think that's the best thing that you can, that you can do. I'm sure it's hard as a spouse because you have PTSD for being in a relationship with this person who's been using. So they're sober, but you're probably always going, do I need to check their pockets? Mm -hmm. Should I go look in the car? Like they were just acting weird. Like they just acted weird. Like, are they using again? Like that is, I think the user, it's all hard. The user's hard, but the person you know, supporting the user, which is why they tell that person to go to Al-Anon because it truly is a recovery in itself, just being with somebody who's using. Yeah, hundred percent. And you don't want to have to live like that. And you want to be able to feel safe and secure and you want to create healthy boundaries. So you have this amazing agency. What about for the person who does has, does not have the resources to be able to um, use you guys. Okay. Yes, we can buy your book. There are other books you can buy, but what is really the first step in someone that has no resources and is just ready to heal? So that's such a broad question, but I think the first step is going and trying to find whether that's, listen, all these 12 step meetings are free, right? So that's a really good place to start. If that is what the issue is, just walk in and sit down and listen. You can always walk out. Yeah, you can walk in drunk, by the way. You don't have to be sober. A lot of people, I think, think you have to be sober to go to meetings. You don't have to be sober to go to meetings. You don't have to be even planning on being sober that day or next week or ever to just go and get information. 
There's so many books that you can also buy. And there's also, if you have insurance and you're, you know, and you need to be able to use your insurance, you can call your insurance and say, Hey, what do you cover that's under addiction or behavioral addiction or mental health? And they'll tell you that. And then you have a resource to be able to call. And I think on my website, there's certain questions that you can ask specific places when you call. You never want to be the one to, you know, they'll say, tell us everything. And then they'll be like, yep, we're the place for you. But you want to be a little bit more proactive. Since the book came out, I wanted to open up, you know, more so we could take those calls and then just put people in the right direction, even if they didn't stay clients. So we're doing more of that because it just felt really uncomfortable for me to like have people call and be like, no, we can't do that. And different from the pro bono clients that we do take on, but just even as a resource to say like, Hey, what do we do about this? And then just get a little direction, um, you know, which we're happy to do as well. I would say that the sobriety community is one of the most like supportive communities I've never been a part of. And I think that's (laughs) one of the most, no, but I was like, I would go, I went to meetings for years. I mean, I was truly, I I went to Al-Anon meetings, but I also went to AA meetings and it was like, it's astonishing how loving and supportive this community is. You can go up to any person in any of those rooms and say, I need help they will fucking help you. They will take you from that meeting to go have a a meal together. They will give you their phone number. They'll drive you home. They'll call you the next day. It's a community that really wants to help. And it's like crazy help, not just like, oh man, like here's my, you know, ear for a minute. They will actionably help you because so much of being sober is giving back. And so I think all the, you know, so I would just say there's so what, as someone who has been in those rooms, those rooms will save your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. And if you walk into one and it doesn't have that vibe and it, you don't have that experience, go to another. There are so many. You can also hop on a Zoom. There's so many Zoom meetings now that are 12 step and you don't even have to show your face or your name or anything. And you can just listen and see if this resonates with you. And if it does, take it a step further. And when you're comfortable, like there's no rules. There's no rules. Yeah, I think it's got to be like the loneliest thing in the world, as you would know, I wouldn't know, but the loneliest thing in the world, suffering from addiction. But if you only knew that on the other side of it, there is so many people that will literally just sit on your doorstep, making sure you're okay. Like there's a whole world out there for you if you are suffering from addiction. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And everyone, you should go buy her book. Uh, It is Soul Variety, Heal Your Trauma, Overcome Addiction, and Reconnect with Your Soul. Thank you so much for being here. Such a great title, Soul Variety. It really really is amazing. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. This was awesome. I really appreciate it. So nice to meet you. Thank you you for being here. If you like this podcast, leave a rating and review. This podcast is executive produced by... Can you not use that voice? I'm sorry, I'm trying to sound... Yeah, but you don't need to make it sexy. This podcast is executive produced Just by... Be, can you, do you have a normal voice? Yeah. Aaron Foster, Sarah Foster, and Allison Bresnick. Okay, I'll take over. Our, Our associate, associate producer is Montana McBurney. See? Our audio engineer is Josh Windish. This show is hosted by Simplecast. See, that didn't sound nice. That sounded great. 